your heart is hungering for our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. As I said in the opening this morning, we're continuing our look at baptism. Last week, we talked in detail about what believers' baptism is, about what baptism means to us and why we do it. We open with the summary statement that it is an outward sign of an inward change. Then we went into detail. We talked about the fact that we are engrafted, that we are abiding in the vine that is Jesus Christ. We talked about the fact that we are being regenerated, that we are being made new, that our heart of stone has been changed out miraculously for a heart of flesh because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We talked the fa- about the fact that we are justified, that we are justified, that we are declared righteous by faith alone. We talked about the fact that we are empowered to surrender. We are, we are empowered to overcome our sinful nature, to overcome the temptations and the trials of this world. We talked about the fact that we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, that that baptism is a power and a promise that was given to us before Jesus left this earth. We also talked about the fact that Christ's death and His resurrection are ours. The gifts, the power, the ultimate sacrifice that was made and the victory that was won over sin and death, those are all ours to claim. And we claim all of those things. We identify with those gifts of Jesus Christ when we submit, when we seek water baptism. We also mention the fact that Christ himself, in his own words, commanded baptism. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the why in a recap once again. This week, we want to talk about the when, when to be baptized, and the how, how to be baptized. So the first of those two questions, when? So when do you get baptized? Well, to answer that question, I went to Scripture. And when did they do it in Scripture? And we're going to go through a number of Scriptures here. The Scripture we looked at last week, Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, In the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, when they believed Philip, they were baptized. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 
36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Acts chapter 10, verse 47. This is Peter speaking. Can anyone hold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 16, verse 33. And this is the jailer that they're speaking of. It says, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all of his family. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. And this is recounting Paul's baptism. He said, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I ask you again, when does the Bible teach to baptize? Upon belief, upon conversion. What has been the practice of the church? Well, there is a variety of practices. Some churches believe and practice infant baptism. We have denominational divides within the Christian faith today. These denominations were created by differences in interpretation. I'll give you a little brief history lesson. You know, we're all familiar with the Catholic Church. We're familiar with the Protestant Church, which we are identified under. The Protestant church itself, the, the whole realm of Protestant churches is divided into many denominations under that umbrella. Infant baptism is practiced in the Catholic church, but not only in the Catholic church. There are also some Protestant denominations that practice infant baptism. We could try this morning to look at each of their views and to seek to explain them and discuss them. But when talking about situations like this and matters like this within denominations and the differences in interpretation, I prefer to take the approach of teaching and understanding what we believe instead of trying to pick apart what, and I hate to use these words because I don't want to portray division, but instead of trying to pick apart what they believe, I believe the best approach in times like this is to be able to articulate and explain what we believe and why we do what we do. And then in the, middle of a, in the midst of a conversation, we have more opportunity to teach rather than just slamming a door and creating a great divide. We believe as a church that we are justified, that we are declared righteous in God's eyes, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We believe that there is no saving power in the physical act of baptism. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. For by grace 
you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so baptism as a work is, does not save us. But what about 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21? Baptism, which corresponds to this, meaning the ark, he had just related the story of the ark and how they were saved by water in the ark. He says, now saves you. No, wait, he's saying baptism saves you? Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What baptism symbolizes saves you, saves me, saves us. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, as Peter says, not as a physical washing of the dirt from our body, but, as Peter says, as an appeal to God for a good conscience. A recognition that our power to change comes from Christ alone, by grace alone, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We also believe that each person, each believer, will be held accountable for their own faith. Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account to himself to God. What about the verses who say them and their households? I believe that in every case, these individuals made a personal decision. Back to Acts 8.12, when Philip baptized, it said both men and women. He didn't mention children there. This is my interpretation. I believe that it is a believer's baptism by our faith. We believe that baptism is an ordinance to be embraced, to participate in when an individual comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Faith or trust, whatever you want to call it, is a decision. Infants are not able to make this decision. So then at what age? The Bible doesn't tell us an age. Traditionally, our church and many churches, even churches, many churches outside of the Mennonite faith, have participated in the practice of an instruction class or a membership class. They'll wait until they get a number of people to sign up. Often they have it on the schedule to do it once a year. They hold a class teaching basic doctrines, primary elements of the gospel and, and basic doctrines of the church and looking into some interpretations of the particular denomination in the scripture. And at the end of the class, then they hold a baptismal service and take them in as members. There's two reasons, I believe, that it's been done this way through, in recent history. First one is because baptism and local church membership have been very closely connected. Next week, as part of this series, we'll talk in detail about local church membership. In summary, it's basically a commitment to serve the local congregation and to be 
willing to be held accountable by that congregation. Another reason for this method with the, instruct, the membership class, instruction class, and then baptism is because of an extreme sense of responsibility by church leaders. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This is a big responsibility. That scripture I just read to you, those who are in charge of the church, are in charge of the church, will have to give account. What exactly does that mean? I don't know exactly what it means. I know that it's something that I considered as I accepted the call to the ministry. And I know that it's important that a person understands what they are identifying with through baptism and a public profession of their faith. That fact may be very evident in the person's life. The fruits may be indisputable. As with the 3,000, as we talked about last week in Acts chapter 2, those 3,000 people stepped out to be baptized knowing the cost, the immediate cost that it was going to be for them in their social, social circles. That was an amazing testament to the validity of their profession. But today, we can only know so much about an individual. We can't I can't, as much as I would like to be able to know a person's heart, to know if they get it, to know if they understand, to know if they truly believe. We can't ultimately know. And the fact of the matter is, individuals throughout time have bluffed their way through membership classes. They have bluffed their way through interviews to determine the validity of their faith. I can tell you some instances of it. I can tell you that there are pastors who have served in the pastorate. I don't know one personally, but I've heard other accounts of pastors who have served in the pastorate for 10, 15 years and never knew the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, truly knew it in their hearts. It is possible. But... I believe that tying church membership to baptism does something that God didn't originally intend. These individuals who are professing faith in Jesus Christ are babes in Christ. There's a lot that they don't understand. There's a lot that they're still trying to wrap their minds around. They've recognized their sinfulness. They know... They believe what God has done for them. They know, they have read that the Bible commands them to be baptized in obedience. But they don't necessarily understand the details of identifying with a particular church, the details of being a church member. They may have, in fact, heard some of the negatives. Oh, you don't want to go to that church. That's a bunch of hypocrites. I know one of their members. They may have been taught that you don't want to submit to anything. It's just kind of like a country club type setting. They need to be taught. They need to be discipled. 
identifying with a particular church body has many blessings. And again, we'll get into that next week. But it begins with identifying with Jesus Christ. Once a person has been led to Christ, the body of Christ is commanded to disciple that person, to teach them, to walk with them, to serve them. If that's done effectively and biblically, that person will probably desire to identify with that church body. This connection of baptism with church membership has made baptism somewhat overwhelming at times. But the Bible simply says, believe and be baptized. You probably see what I'm leading up to here. The leadership team here at Providence has made the decision to disconnect baptism from church membership. Yes, baptism will be a prerequisite for church membership. But we have not come to this decision lightly. You say, what, what will this look like? How do you mean disconnect baptism from church membership? When someone, when an individual has came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we will encourage them to seek baptism as soon as possible. Again, speaking of denominations, some denominations hold this extremely urgent, like they can't leave the building until they're baptized. We don't believe that extreme urgency, but we do encourage it to be as quickly as feasible. It may be a few weeks. They may want family around. It's understandable. But we are intending to encourage it to be done fairly quickly. We will want to sit down with each individual who is professing faith and seeking baptism. You say they didn't do that with the 3,000. No, they didn't. And let me explain our intentions, our desires to sit down with the individuals. It's not to sit down with them with an attitude of suspicion. You know, the whole innocent until proven guilty. We don't want to sit down with these individuals trying to find a reason to declare them not saved. Our desire is to sit down with them and to understand where they are. Our desire is not to hold our holiness over their heads and see if they measure up. Because they don't measure up. That's why they're desiring and seeking to lay everything down and, commit and, say, and submit their lives to Jesus Christ. But our desire in this is to sit down and, and take the opportunity to begin a relationship with the individual. To begin at the beginning of their journey. And we also, to the best of our ability, want to help them to understand what they are identifying with what they are professing to. The purpose of this is to help them establish a point of reference in their lives, kind of a signpost to go back to, so that when life happens, when trials hit, when things that we don't understand, they can look back and they can say, through my baptism, I told the world, both the natural and the spiritual realm, that I am a child of God. And because of that status, 
that I did nothing to achieve but by the grace of God, not because of the baptism, but because of the truth that the individual identified with. Despite what the world throws at me, I will stand. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Our baptism is a sign pointing to our acceptance of that promise. We, the church, then after baptism have the responsibility to disciple not just to get them to the point of church membership and say, okay, now they're good. They're a church member. It doesn't stop there. Part of the church membership is the accountability. What a beautiful opportunity we have to walk along individuals who are professing faith in Jesus Christ. Now again, asking the question, what age? This is a difficult question. And there's no solid answer. We want them... We desire for them to be able to understand what they are committing to. You say, well, what does that look like? At this time, we would want to lean heavily on the parent or the guardian of the child. We also hope that we've had interaction with them here, but if not, there's just all kinds of variables. We also remember when considering the age, it would be a blessing to the children to be able to remember their baptism, to be able to vividly remember the day that they were baptized. Every situation will be different, though. And our desire is to look at each situation differently and walk with the parents and walk with the child. And that will be an opportunity to walk along with that entire family. That is the why and the when. There's a lot of information I put out there this morning. Maybe some questions in your mind, and I encourage you to come to me or one of the leadership team and have a discussion with us about this. What about the how? We've talked about the why and we've talked about the when. What about the how? You've probably heard the term, the mode of baptism basically means the method in which you are baptized. Was it sprinkling or pouring or immersion? Again, some denominations teach that there is only one way, one valid baptism. In our church, we accept all three modes as long as they were performed after a personal profession of faith in Jesus Christ. We've traditionally, as Anabaptists, done sprinkling or pouring, which both involve a pitcher and pouring or sprinkling over the head of the individual. Some say the pouring symbolizes the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In the Anabaptist movement, it was actually uh, a means of safety. They were baptizing, they were Anabaptists, they were rebaptizers, and this was very much looked down upon to the point of death. So they were not able to go into public waterways to baptize. 
because of fear of persecution and death. So they participated in sprinkling in, inside of buildings. It's one of the reasons behind it. Tob Slayball, who was the founding pastor, the pastor here when this church was founded, I've been told by a number of individuals he made this statement. He said, I'll baptize any way you would like, just so you don't think it's the only way. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that statement, personally. I, myself, was sprinkled and cherished my baptism deeply. Have vivid memories of that day, vivid memories of who I was before I came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and who I was after. Beautiful, valid memories. My preference today, though, would be immersion. The symbolism of immersion is very rich. The verse I read is a call to worship, Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, the going down into the water and the coming up in newness of life and resurrection. The symbolism is amazing. You look at some of the baptisms, you remember when Jesus was baptized, it says he went down to the water. When Philip took the eunuch, the scripture specifically says they went down into the water. Strong's definition of baptism is to immerse, submerge, to make overwhelmed, fully wet. There have been extensive studies done of Scripture as to the modes of baptism. If you want to know more about that, I encourage you to find some books, some commentaries that dig into that a lot deeper than I am here today. I just wanted to give you some thoughts and encourage you not to let the mode be a stumbling block, but to seek what God is calling you into personally. Because whatever you choose, remember that baptism is a sign. Just like the sign we talked about last week to Washington on I-69, whether it's an animated 10-foot digital billboard or a simple metal sign on a post, they both point past themselves to something else. Believers' baptism, no matter the mode you choose, points to the greatest gift that mankind has ever known. Churches had divided over the sign, the act of baptism. I pray this morning that as you process what I presented here this morning, that we can unite, that we can stand together as we look to move forward from this point. What a beautiful gift believer's baptism is. What an amazing treasure it is to identify ourselves with the richness and the fullness of the sacrifice of the gift of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the ordinance, for the gift, the privilege of baptism, Lord. God, I pray that each of us can process 
what you have brought to us here this morning. I pray, God, that we each hold dear this, the ordinance of baptism. And that if we have not sought it yet, that if we have that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if anyone here, that they would seek that baptism. That they would seek that public identification with you, Lord. And that we as a church would stand with them, discipling them, walking with them through their maturity and growing together, Father. We thank you for that gift and for that privilege, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we have the amazing opportunity once again to participate in another ordinance that is laid out for us in Scripture, the ordinance of the communion table. This morning, is Jesus your King? We invite you to join us at the communion table. Jesus himself led the disciples in the very first communion. In Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup, And given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. This practice is a reminder and a celebration of what Christ did for us on the cross. By dying for our sins and thus satisfying once and for all, the wrath of God. Finalizing His life of perfect obedience, the only one who could achieve that. Fulfilling every promise of God. Securing our salvation. Making a way of reconciliation between us and our Creator God. Securing the future kingdom of God for each of us. And our inheritance in that kingdom. Christ's death on the cross was the climax of the Old Testament and the central theme of the New Testament. In Psalms 85.10, God's righteousness and His peace kissed at the cross. God's love and His justice were both fully manifested in the death of His Son. So this morning, we come to the communion table joyful that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves us, but also enables us to continue in obedience to our Father in heaven. Jesus is judge, and He fights our battles for us. At this time, I want to invite each of you in a moment of silence to take part in a time of examination, in silent prayer, in speaking and seeking God for where you are in your life, for how you are embracing the gift of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's go into silent prayer.
Father God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the privilege to come to the communion table, Lord. I pray, God, that each heart here this morning is open to seek you, to listen to you, to rejoice in the fact that you are lovingly and faithfully directing us, preparing us, and guiding us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that each heart will be prepared to come together at this table this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.